Holiday Mailbag Edition of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs in unseasonably warm DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me from the island of Manhattan, one of my favorite co-hosts, even though there's that one person on Twitter who tells me he sucks ass, mm. it's John Taylor. John, how are you? Which one of my followers is it that told you I suck? <laughs> yeah, or I'm, how many for that I'm, matter? I'm, I'm guessing curious. he doesn't follow me. So, so I, you know, I tweeted, hey, we're going to do a mailbag issue. I'm doing it with John Taylor. And he responded, John Taylor sucks ass. And then, John, I have a very bad habit that I need to get rid of, but I still okay. have it, which is when someone's an asshole on Twitter, I go look at their timeline just to kind of get a degree. Oh, I do that too. Okay. I think people do this. Um, I know um, my wife deals with a lot of jerks on Facebook and she tells at their timeline just to see how bad they are. We all, Everyone does it. So this guy says you suck ass and, and I'm like, well, no, he doesn't. And I looked at his timeline. It, you could not... He just checked all the boxes. So first I'm of sure. all, first I'm of sure. all, he tells a lot of people that's his favorite term to let someone know that someone or something or you or whatever sucks ass. Very popular. He likes doing that. His okay. life sucks ass is, is it's his go to, if you will. Okay. When he's not doing that, he's tweeting at various barstool people to let them know someone said something bad about them. Of course, she's a of course. He's a snitch. He's a stoolie snitch, of course. And then he also had a few tweets at Elon Musk. Oh, <laughs> it was like, of like it's it like, man, you got, you're doing it all. You know, you're, you're at a, at a, at a, I think there are like two or three crypto things in there too. He was, he yeah. Was, it's just it is it is the inevitable like bingo of bad Twitter accounts. Is you go to the likes and just see how long it takes before some extreme MAGA stuff comes up, and it is it never takes more than five tweets. Yeah, never. Or the the ones I always love are the are the folks who just come off deranged, and then you look through their replies, and it's just they're just replying nonstop to like porn accounts. It's just like, oh, you have like, <laughs> there's something way bigger going on here that I'm not a part of. Back in my uh, in my previous media thing, so before my Astros time when I was at at, at Baseball Perspectives and ESPN, um, I also had a show um, that I did with Mike Farron and Stephen Goldman on on MLB Network Radio on Sirius. Mm-hmm. And this guy heard that and was mad at me. And I can't remember his name, but it was something. His, his Twitter handle was something from Long Island. It was like Stan from LI, right? Of course. And he would yell at me and he'd be mad. And he, he had the creepiest Twitter accounts to this day that I've ever seen where 98% of his tweets were aimed at uh, local New York station weather women. Oh, God. To let them know how much he liked what they wore today. Oh, that's... But like five yeah. a day, like he just watched all of them. Oh, it was like really it was upsetting. like it was like Channel Eight Tracy Weather. Love the red jacket today. You're looking amazing. And then like Channel Four Becky Weather. Oh, I love that. Love that skirt today. It was kind of short. It was just like it's all uh, he did. It was so. It was amazing. Oh uh, boy. 
happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, we're really starting this on the uh, real, like, <laughs> up note of come, Obviously. come gawk at the freaks on Twitter. <laughs> Boy. It's, uh... It's December 23rd, we wanted to get a show out for you, and obviously, people are all over today. I know, someone told me today they're going snowshoeing, believe that's, it or not. That's, snowshoeing is cool, I think, I, I, I respect that. Have you that. snowshoed in your life? No, but it, it seems like a fun time, maybe, in the right yeah. circumstance. I, I guess. And plowing uh, through snow. So we're not in a position to do a whole show, so we, we had a fun time, and we got good feedback from the holiday email thing we did around Thanksgiving, and... But my email back partner, John, back, and we're just going to go through a few emails and just get you through. If you're traveling tomorrow or you just got to gotta get away from the family for a bit or you just want to sit there and open presents with headphones on, that's yeah. perfectly acceptable. Yeah, crack that's a beer, fire up a bowl. It's the holidays. <laughs> so we got about 10 of your emails. Actually, we have 11. I added one I didn't tell you about, but it's a, it's a simple question for you. And mm. we're just going to rip through these emails and then we're going to move on and then you get on with your with your holiday fun. Let's you ready to go? Yeah, let's go. first email comes from Steve. Steve says, hey, Kevin and John, I hope all is well. I have a bit of a ridiculous question that requires a hypothetical lead, so please bear with me. Let's say a couple of months ago when the Mets were looking for their new GM, Steve Cohen said, fuck it, let's just go with some random guy. Almost did that. Uh, Mm -hmm. he, He goes on Twitter, he finds some of my tweets about baseball, and he picks me as the new GM of the Mets. That's right, me with absolutely no previous experience, connections, or know-how. I gladly take the job. I walk into my office, I sit down at my desk, and I think, you know what would really put us over the top is acquiring Shane Bieber from the Guardians. Here's where my question comes. How would I get in touch with Mike Chernoff to even let him know of my interest? Presumably when you have been in baseball for a while, you make connections throughout your career, but as a total greenhorn, I wouldn't have that. Is there some kind of directory that all teams have with contact info? Would I just call them directly and leave a message? Or would we need to set up a meeting? And what if I wanted to let other GMs know if some of my players are available? Do I contact them all individually? Is there some kind of messaging system? Do I just leak it through the media? Is there any other info that I need to know about connecting with other teams? I started thinking about this when Brody Van Wagenen was the GM with limited front office experience, though presumably as an agent, he had contacts. Thanks for humoring me and happy holidays. You're right about Brody. Obviously, Brody was um, the, the head agent at one of the biggest agents, CCA Baseball, so he knew all these people. But it's funny you use the word directory because right here on my desk, you know, it's sitting here, some, a, little, a, little, a little remnant from my time with the Astros. It's the 2018 version of the annual MLB Confidential Directory. Ooh, special. And in that directory is a listing for every team. It lists everybody, everybody from the GM to the trainer to analyst. And it has their email address and their and their cell phone number. So, so that, you, that's how you do it. So you, Steve, as the new GM, would likely open up your MLB Confidential Directory. And you'd go to the Guardians page, and you'd look up Mike Chernoff, and you'd probably, someone would advise you, you'd probably send him a text. That's how you'd start there. You'd send him a text. You wouldn't, there was no need for a meeting. Just send him a text. Maybe even give him a call. Say, hey, let's talk about Bieber. We've you know, got some interest here. I don't know where you guys stand. Um, and, and you'd go from there. You do, you know, okay, you have, now your GMs now have other players. How do you know some of my players are available? Um this is done through a couple ways. Like if you're just, there is a mailing list. There's an address. 
It's it's uh, I'm I'm not going to say it, but it's it's there's a, there's like a group address, and if you send this address in Outlook to like this, well, I'm going to call it all Major League Baseball GMs, and you send it to that, that email will then go out. It's like a mailing list. It'll go out to all GMs, right? There is a one for AGMs. There's one for um, I used to get the ones that were sent to international and pro directors. Um, so there's ways to group email everyone. You use that one. If you are, if you like are getting ready to plop someone off your 40, right? So before we DFA Bob ball player, we send an email to all GMs, maybe even all the AGMs usually just go, Bob ball player is, is available for assignment. If you have any interest, contact this person real brief, real quick. Um, and so that if, but if you're going to, if you're like sitting around, if you're the, if you're the guardians and you're thinking of talking about the teams about Shane Bieber, that's more of a private where you're either you or one of your lackeys will reach out to the 30 teams. The Astros had a very um, specific system for this where basically people had teams. So there, I had like eight teams that I had, you know, I knew someone there. I had good relationships with someone there. So when it was time to let them know that Bob, we might listen on Bob baseball, I would let those eight teams know through the context I had. So um, almost everything is done via text. Uh, we talked about the winter meetings with Lindsay a couple of weeks ago where um, I don't even know why we went because we would just sit in the tweet and text the whole time and then find out two days later the person you've been texting to a hundred times is literally 30 feet away from you in another suite. Um, but it's all text. And yes, you have, there is the MLB confidential directory that tells you where to go. So is there a GM group text and, mm. and or group DM and do GMs get roasted in it just like in regular DMs for stuff like, do you guys rename the group DM, or not you guys, but did, does the group DM get renamed for typos? <laughs> like if, if Brian Cashman accidentally says Aaron Jurge, like does, group, <laughs> does like everyone respond with Jurge? He just becomes Jurge. I don't think there's a 30 GM text chain. Um, I know of plenty of people who have text groups with people that they work with or associate with, but I don't think there's a one for 30 thing. Okay. I was kind of hoping that there too would be like a, a group, a reply all apocalypse for GMs where someone just replies all and they just can't get out of the loop. <laughs> uh, I had a text change with uh, when I was pro director with two, two scouts that I worked with and uh, we used it entirely to post photos of our Panda Express food when we were on the road. Okay, that's what I, that's about what I figured would be <laughs> the appropriate way to use these things. Our next email comes from Rob. And Rob says, Dear Kevin, I really loved Up It In, your Baseball Prospectus podcast. I was happy to see you come back to podcasting with Chid Music. You are a great host and interviewer. Thank you, Rob. That's very kind of you. I'm a Nationals fan. I think I understand what they're doing and why, but I'm skeptical that it will work. I'm not talking about 2022. They're clearly not playing for 2022. But beyond that time frame, I question whether the return they got in their trades will help the team much since their system started from such a terribly low place. What do you think of their moves, particularly the decision to include Trey Turner in their transactions? And what do they pretend for the team's competitive window and their ability to re-sign Juan Soto? More generally, could a team really rebuild through trades if their system is as barren as the national system was before trades? Even more generally, do you think the tanking strategy that the Astros and Cubs employed so successfully is no longer as promising as it once, once may have been? With so many teams embracing the tanking strategy and others now prizing their best homegrown talent more highly, has the return on trades diminished? And not to read too much into the Braves championship, 
but they clearly benefited from going in the opposite direction of the deadline, with the Nationals and other teams attempting to tank increasingly find themselves bankrupt on selling. Happy holidays to you and your esteemed co-hosts. And thanks again to the podcast. It's giving lots of people a lift today and we need it. Oh, nice, nice little, a nice little buried Modest Mouse reference in there with bankrupt on selling. <laughs> we'll give I them like credit. It. I don't think that was, I don't think that was intentional, but I, yeah, I appreciate it. You know what? Let's like to I'll, think I'll it give is. Rob, let's, I'll give Rob the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, thank you for, was. thank you for that brief Modest Mouse reference <laughs> that you may or may not have intended. Um, I think the first thing to say is like, we don't know what baseball is going to look like when the, when the, the CBA agreement happens in let's say six to eight weeks. Um, and so tanking might be less incentivized, but let's talk about it as we have baseball right now. Um, I do think that the Astros and Cubs employing a tanking strategy and it leading to World Series titles was kind of bad for baseball and that other teams tried it without realizing that the Astros and Cubs both got really, really lucky in a lot of ways as well. Like, you, it's not some sort of guaranteed path and you can get trapped in rebuilding. Like, you yeah. can just get into this absolute death spiral it's called the reds or the or the current (laughs) orioles or Uh, the orioles yeah the orioles are are trying to pull out of it and i think they're starting to but they got but you get trapped in this thing and and i hear this all the time and the orioles are good let's use the orioles for a second like i got like 17 questions in my last chat should they trade cedric mullins like these i don't think he's going to be around for their window and I'm like, well, if you trade Cedric Mullins, you delay your window. If, if you and, trade Cedric Mullins, you are admitting that there is no window. Right. And so like, like you're the, you're admitting that the window is so small and so poorly propped open that there's no point in having it. You might as well just keep tanking forever. And that's which the, I'm not entirely sure the Orioles haven't decided to do. <laughs> and that's the trap. Like you trade Cedric Mullins, and then by the time you find your next Cedric Mullins level of player. It's two years is, later, and people are sending questions in my chat saying, "Should they trade that guy because he's not approaching?" Like, and you you got to get to a point. You're not going to go from "we suck" to "we are a title contender." You have to get through the mid range of that. We're like we're bad but not horrible. To we're pretty good. You have to have players to get you there, and so you can't just and so like this constant teams do it, and like they're just constantly chasing this future churn. And by constantly chasing this future, they're never getting closer to a good future. You well, the I mean? other. The other thing specifically, and I know this is Oriole specific to chat questions that we're not even reading. We're, we're doing a whole extra mailbag now, but it's like, why would you trade Cedric Mullins, especially when Adley Rutschman will be up at some point in 2022 and definitely by 2023? Right. It's just like the literally the best prospect in baseball, literally the next Joe Maurer. Like, why would you make your team worse ahead of him showing up? Right. Let's yeah. It's just this constantly chasing it and don't chase it. At some point, you just have to be. Well, but that's if like, you're going to be good at some point. You have to be like a 75 win team. Well, I, I just good. I agree with you too that a lot of I always thought this from not necessarily the start, but when it became kind of the the strategy to jure was like. People don't realize like Houston and Houston botched two number one picks out of three and still managed to win because they got very lucky and had a really smart player development system. And like a lot of teams don't have number one, don't have the latter and two aren't lucky enough to land the former. Same with the Cubs. Like the Cubs were the beneficiary of one of those botched Houston picks. Chris Bryant just plopped right into their laps at number two, which they Yep. I don't know. Maybe they were expecting it by that point. I'm, you know, depending. They were on, not. Yeah. I think, but I, like, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what the draft discussions were like for the Mark Apple draft. But at the same time, I, I can't imagine the Cubs 
same thing even with Kyle Schwarber. I mean, that panned out way better and way faster than they probably even expected, even though they knew that they were, you know, in drafting an advanced college bat. It's like, yeah, this guy's going to be ready very quickly, but he got ready even faster than they would have assumed and had an impact way faster than they would have assumed. That's the thing. Like, all of that, they really lucked out, and it's really hard to make that, to make lightning strike twice, especially when every other team suddenly, not suddenly, but I think got together and was like, hey, why are we giving away the young prospects? We shouldn't do that. Right. Like, it just that's the thing. Like that, I don't think that tanking strategy works anymore because teams don't operate under those same principles anymore. Yeah, the the prospect hugging for teams has gotten a lot tighter. And I would um, wager too sure. that, assuming that the new CBA does bring with it some form of expanded playoffs, which I think is probably inevitable there. Mm-hmm that tanking is going to be less appealing if only because your path to the playoffs gets so much easier when all you have to do is aim for 82 to 85 wins and it doesn't take much money or effort to get to that point you know you don't have to you don't have to go nuts in terms of accumulating prospects or or players to make your team good enough and so I think that's kind of another thing where it's like I, I think you see that like with Texas where they were in that kind of bad rebuild spot and then they suddenly saw oh we can probably get way better sooner than we thought and stay there for longer than we thought. And we don't have to go through this whole horrible process where for two to three years we are just garbage on earth. Right, miserable. I, I, I think there are a lot of teams that probably feel like that is that two to three year minimum path of pain probably isn't necessary anymore. Unless you were like in an Orioles type state where, you know, as they were a few years ago, where it's like there's really no way out of this other than digging through the center of the earth. Right. Right, and and you're gonna have to do that at times, and um, and I do think I do think there's going to be, I don't think we're gonna see profound changes in the structure of baseball. Um, I just don't. Um, I don't know anyone who does. Um, and but I I do hope we get some sense of of some things that help make it better or more easy or even incentivizes teams to put their best players on the field. Um, no, I mean we definitely need this. that. We we need whatever version of baseball is is essentially tank proof as possible but i mean teams are always gonna there are always gonna be teams or at least ownership groups that want to go do things on the cheap and the cheapest way to run a baseball team is to tank it so i don't think that that will change necessarily i just don't think that the same kind of cubs astro style teardown and what the orioles are doing now i think those days might be at an end where that is the building strategy and it makes me kind of feel bad for the orioles because they really were the last ones on the boat right as the mm-hmm. boat started mm-hmm. slowing down. And, you know, they, they made a lot of their, you know, I'm not, I'm both sympathetic to the Orioles and also, like, you guys made your own bed here. No one made you do this. But no, I agree with time, you. I, but I, I also think... There was no other way out. I, I, it's, I, it's I, I agree, and, I, like, I've bad. always been... Uh, first of all... I, like, I, I also like that we've not talked about the Nationals even once for this question. <laughs> 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 this guy's just sitting here being like, where where what I want to know about the Nationals? They're, uh, Tell know, they're, me about Yadiel Hernandez already. <laughs> the Nationals are in trouble, man. Yeah, they're um, not good. I just, I actually just wrote up. Um, I'm doing a, a freelance assignment for a um, a mag. Do you know Lindy's? Uh, I've done. I did Lindy's like a decade ago. Okay, yeah, I'm doing some of their team caps. I actually just wrote up the Nationals the other day, and yeah, that roster is really thin. It's also like they're like a really weird team. Just in the case, I, Juan Soto removed. They're both bad and boring. Yeah, you know I mean, what I mean. The, the, it's a, the it's thing a boring I, the, roster, other than Juan Soto, who's the thing I amazing. hadn't. I had actually forgotten until I until I did, started digging in again to do this writing. I had forgotten that Strasburg under had thoracic outlet syndrome. That's mm-hmm. 
yeah, I like I had already thought to myself, oh, the Nationals aren't gonna be aren't gonna be good next year, but they may not be terrible. And I saw, oh, they don't like have it any starting pitching right they might be terrible like at um, all none like their best starter right now might be josiah gray and uh and juan soto's agent is scott boris and i don't say that's it's a bad thing i think it's fine to have scott boris but scott boris clients scott, tend scott to boris's, really really like getting to free agency scott boris's extension demand if one exists is going to be take the tatis contract and add 50 to 100 million that's, that's the starting point i think that's i think that, and that's i a think good over under I think he is entirely justified because if there's any player on, I mean, maybe it would have been Tatis, but I think just in terms of what he can do offensively, if you want to talk about a guy where you can talk yourself into a contract over $450 million. It's Juan Soto. Like, I know he's not great defensively. I know he is a total negative on the bases. Like, he is entirely just... Right. If he but hit at the like, same if he time, had three twenty four fifty six forty next year, would you be shocked? I wouldn't. No. Like I would exp- like the dude is basically doing what Ted Williams did. Like, he's amazing. He is but- a carbon copy of Ted Williams offensively, and I think you know if if yeah if if the context had existed as it was now, like you take the Ted Williams now and the Red Sox now, then that, let me start over with that. I'm 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 all, <laughs> I'm all over the place temporarily. If if you'd wanted to give Ted Williams an extension coming off his like. 1941 season you know in today's money what would that have looked like Mm -hmm. like i i don't see any reason why boris or soto should aim low you know and that's that's going to be a real problem for the nationals because if i was a betting man i would bet that once soto gets to free agency it goes elsewhere yeah because i mean you saw how it played out with harper they had a billion opportunities to lock him down early but and i I, I think harper was somewhat I don't, I don't i don't think there was ever any shot he was going to stay i always figured he was going to go to free agency because he always wanted to know or see like what yeah. can i get like because that's and all power to him like bryce harper is a great player in that regard that he is out to make mm-hmm. to do the best and make the most for himself and All most players Scherzer. are like that most players really want to get to crazy most players really want to go through the process they really want to he, I mean, see what they their options to are their own and that's and they want to choose their own team and that's and they've absolutely earned that right and good for them i have no problem yeah. with that and if, but I'm, like, and if i'm very Soto, few players like just want to stay somewhere forever that most of them want to get to free agents and, and like if you're soto like you know next year's nationals aren't going to be good there's a pretty good chance the 2023 nationals aren't going to be good either because the farm system isn't awful but it's thin it's pretty, and it's, it's pretty awful it's pretty okay yeah fair i'm trying to I'm trying to be I nice understand. it's like you got Cade cavalli and you got jackson rutledge but yeah no it, it's not a good farm system um, it's not a good farm system. Their best position player in it, Khalil Watson, is what three years away, probably at or, least. At, at least, least, yeah. So we're we're talking a while before you get another impact position player up there, unless Luis Garcia suddenly pops, which seems unlikely. Or if they ever figure out Victor Robles, which at this point, that I don't really see why you would expect that. That's a total approach problem there. That like, you know, what do you do with that? So. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a meager few. I think I, I made the point. It's like people in DC should get used to. It, it's not gonna look the same way the Nationals did when they were last when they were a last place team back in the day because that team was just incompetent. That had, it had no direction. No one knew what they were doing. They were just bad. Mm-hmm. But I think it's gonna be the same result. There are gonna be a lot of really bad teams coming through the next few years. Yeah, they're gonna be bad in a way that you're at least like, well, there's some good things here. There's Josiah Gray and there's Kybert Ruiz and there's Soto, of course, and. You know, there there are going to be young guys that float through and older guys that have nice, you know, the, the whole Josh Harrison experience was very nice. But yeah, yeah that they're going to be a last place team for the next couple of years, I think, at least unless things go really, really wrong in Miami. Um. So, yeah. Sorry, Rob. 
Yeah, sorry. Okay, I, maybe maybe he didn't want us to talk about. And that. Merry Christmas, Rob. Turned it, what uh, a downer that turned into. <laughs> Rick Steele comes from Michael. Michael says hello, esteemed host, and J- at J A Taylor, which is John's that, Twitter, handle, that is my Twitter handle, where he sucks ass. I really do suck <laughs> on Twitter, honestly. <laughs> Michael says, this is a pretty specific question for KG, but how do NDAs work for front office staff moving to a new team? Have you ever heard of someone actually breaching slash a team enforcing one of these when an employee changes teams? Say, for example, you worked for the Astros and you knew there was an underlying issue with Correa's inner ear or some other weird medical malady and your new job with the Mariners. Are you allowed to disclose that information or you just have to vaguely suggest that there could be medical issues? Similar question with evaluation systems. Oh, I know the Astros' new front office doesn't value two-seam pitchers. We should target their two-seam pitchers in trades. Pull back the curtain. Well, I um, know if you're if you're in the Padres, you don't have to disclose medical. Issues, yeah, right? that's, that's a <laughs> good lord. The fact that that didn't turn to a bigger thing is still just as someone when I was just absolutely amazing. But let's start with the medical piece, which is just that um, if Carlos Correa has an inner ear or other weird medical malady, that has to be in his in his medical file. Has to be. There's a team that didn't do that, and they're called the San Diego Padres, and for some reason they didn't get a big punishment for it because it was really ugly, um, where they had a, a second shadow medical the, file on guys. It was, I remember the Drew Palmer and Anderson Espinosa mm-hmm. trade that they hit, that they, I'll be charitable and say, Pomeranz's arm injury history and recent problems were not included, and the Red Sox were livid about that. Right. Which in the, the not funny, but... I guess the irony is that Espinosa ended up blowing out like a year later anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and Pomeranz was actually pretty good with the Red Sox. Yeah, it's pretty solid. And turned um, turned in a nice or turned into a nice reliever eventually. But anyway, so you know, before you make a trade, you do get access to that medical file. That medical file has their, or is supposed to have their complete medical history, all of their imaging, um, all that kind of stuff. It's all there for you to review. Um, and so, uh, you know, the other thing is obviously Cray's a free agent and before you sign that contract he's going to get a full physical which includes imaging and all that kind of good stuff now you talk about like evaluation systems so obviously yes when you work for a team you are um, under an NDA if you talk to lawyers they'll say that NDAs are wonderful but one of the things about an NDA is they are incredibly difficult to enforce because all the terms of what is covered by the NDA are very very vague so I you know is me saying that the Astros really favored four seamers that rise a lot violating an NDA. No, not at all. If I took the code for the Astros pitch grader, which used pitch data and turned it into a grade, that would be violating NDA. You get into the weird stuff where if I knew how the Astros pitch grader worked and went to a team and wrote my own pitch grader based on that, is that the violation of the NDA? It's all I mean, very just, gray. That, that's just business. Right. And that's just business. And teams do see it I as mean, just I, business. I, I, and I obviously... imagine, I mean, I got to imagine this is the same. You could ask the same question of like Silicon Valley companies and Absolutely. get the same response that, yeah, there's the difference. Like, you know, there's a difference between knowing something that's common intellectual property and copying that intellectual property but differentiating right. it like that's the gray area where I think right. everyone lives right so if I showed up at, that, at a team and I said hey I'm gonna I'm gonna build a pitch grader we used him it was great which I can't do because I have no idea how to program that um that would be this that would be business if I showed up at a new team with a uh you know a flash drive that had all the code on it that would be right because that's IP that theft would, that would be IP theft and that's where you get no weird stuff and obviously the Astros have that issue 
Um, and the whole like Chris Correa and the Cardinals thing, Correa breaking into the Astros systems because he was convinced the are Astros those, stole stuff from the Cardinals. And are those systems? Can you? I don't know if copyright is the right term here, but for lack of a better one, can you? Are, are those things essentially defensible as intellectual property that is specific and like you can? Can you prove that it's like this is our specific thing that no one else created and that we did? The code itself, you certainly can. Okay. Um, and most most smart coders, um do put like some specific weird things in their code so they know it's their code if you will okay um be just in the comments yeah. i because I, I, I figured like obviously you can't copyright the idea that like oh four seamers with with high spin rates up in the zone are a good thing like you know you can't copyright the idea necessarily but right you can copyright the or whatever the code that you write to create like you said to create the program to identify mm-hmm. which yeah. Right, and and so people put weird stuff in code, so to just to make their code unique and, and know that and identifiable to them. Um, I had a friend, uh, you know, before a long time ago in the '90s, who worked for Random McNally, the map company, mm-hmm. uh, and they put fake towns on maps in order awesome. to in order to protect their map. So, like, you know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere of Rhode Island, they would put like Johnson City, Rhode Island. It doesn't exist. Um, and then they would look at other people. They would look at other people's maps and they go, "Oh, you got Johnson City, Rhode Island there, huh?" I feel bad because Rand McNally, the immediate, like, I immediately think in my head about the Simpsons joke about how Rand McNally is a place where people walk on their hands and hamburgers eat people. <laughs> it's There's a complicated intro to that reference, but it's just, it, it's amazing how many just things that exist in reality are just Simpsons reference points <laughs> in my brain at this rate. Just to say I'm a true millennial. Uh, to, to be fair, I don't, I don't, I, I never really got into The Simpsons, and I don't get references to The Simpsons. And wow. yet, when I watch the show, I think it's funny. I get it. Like I've never seen The Sopranos. There's things, there's holes in my world. How do you call yourself a Gen Xer, and you just you don't live and breathe these things? I saw the watch the wire. I can talk about the wire with you if you want. That's fine. Yeah, I can. I can be covered. The wire helps. Every- also, since, since medical issues got mentioned, this, this I've always wondered this. Yeah. When it comes to giving players a, a physic, the physical like before assigning or whatever. There was always the running bit, it felt like, that these physicals were, by all by all accounts, like, obviously they happened, but it was very rare to fail them, unless it's the Orioles. The Orioles seemed to have this weirdly high rate of physical failure. <laughs> uh-huh. Did they just give different physicals? Or is this some... Was this some way of them getting out of things that they came to realize they no longer wanted to do? Or are they just kind of really picky about what they find right. problematic? So, so as, okay, so when I worked for the Astros, um, I think it was out there. They almost had a deal done for Zach Britton, and at the end of the day, the physicals got in the way, and the deal didn't get done, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, when you're doing a trade, obviously you're not doing a physical. You're reviewing the medical file, right? You know, right. You're not, you don't have time. And, um, and so the deal was agreed to in terms of the people. And so here's the people and then here's the medical files. Let's do this. Um, and then they rejected someone for, uh, they rejected the player for a reason that shocked us. Just mm. sh- like, really? You're re- this is the reason it was something that was, that this person had saw a thing in their medical file that was absolutely um, for the Houston Astros, a zero in terms of concern, a dead zero. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they dinged him off of that. So they're just, they're picky. And my understanding was like the person, I mean, and when you do the medicals, like you go, hey, you call your people who do your medical reviews, and you know, so you obviously people on your medical staff, you go, hey, we did this trade, here comes, you know, they're, they're sitting on call, like during the trade deadline. You go, hey, we got this deal done, here come the medical files, we need this back quick, and they go, we're looking at it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then their job is not really a thumbs up, thumbs down. At least it wasn't the Asher. Their job was like, here's what the medical file says. Here's my concerns. Here's my level of concerns. Right. I, it's not my job to say thumbs up. I'm just letting you know so you can make a better decision. Right. They're providing uh, with information. Right. I was told that the Orioles medical review person was a, just a stickler to end all sticklers. Mm-hmm. And like it was okay. just like this person was the roadblock. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense, but I had always wondered that because it always felt yeah. like every year there was always one random free agent the Orioles would sign. Oh no, yeah, it like became like three it's days like it, later. It was like an in, it became like an industry joke to be honest. Yeah, like, it was like, like it without fail. Like a few days later, it'd be contract no longer agreed to, player fail the physical. Yeah, like, like, why are the like what are the Orioles making these guys do? Are they having them do like the like the marine obstacle course at Paris <laughs> Island or something? When the, yeah, when the when the Britain deal Just failed, Buck like Show Walter screaming expletives <laughs> at people while they try to climb a wall. I would love to hear Buck try to do the entire <laughs> Arlie Ermy bit from from Full Metal Jacket. Like pick any one of his like I guess you can call them monologues. It's not exactly Shakespearean, but like just have Buck stand there. Oh, they just are screaming invective. Yeah. So so the Britain deal fell, and I actually got like texts from people with our teams going like just it said LOL Orioles. Like I just like they knew exactly what happened because they had happened to them too at some point. Yeah. Well, that's that's that is well that is great. There, there needs to be a show or a show called like Baseball Unsolved Mysteries, but it's just really small <laughs> things like that. Just the weird little things people have been hanging on to in baseball forever and been like, "Can you answer this for me? Like, some someone just help me with this." If you have an unsolved mystery, it, it's basically send us an email. Send it's basically a, a show where class. where people just surf retro sheet for you <laughs> and are like, "Here's the game you're talking about. You're not crazy." It'd be a good. It would be yeah. It'd be a good service. Uh, next email comes from Kyle. Kyle says, why is it considered a bad thing to be a left-hand platoon hitter? They start 75 to 80% of the games, which isn't that far off of the 90 to 95% that everyday players do. And even everyday starters usually have some sort of platoon split, which the platoon bat would make up for by having a right-hand platoon partner. Kyle, you let me, yeah, you just opened me up for a little bit of a, a rant here. Hey, it's, it's, uh, so there's, the, the bad thing is just that you need, you then need another roster spot. So, like, that's the, you know, I, I get, I think platoons are good if you have too many of them. You kind of hurt your roster, unless you're the Giants and are really smart about it. Like, it takes two roster spots to fill left field because you got the righty and the lefty. But here's my little thing, which is when, you know, we think about talking about prospects or even talking about big leaguers and we, and we add as a good thing, oh, and he's left-handed. Oh, and he's left-handed with pitchers. I'm talking specifically about pitchers. Here's the little thing. It's not good to be a left-handed pitcher because three-fourths of the batters you're facing are the opposite. It's not a good thing. It's a it's a challenge to be a left-handed pitcher. It's a greater challenge. And so, like, that concept is, is out the window. But the biggest problem with the, with the platoon hitter is just that you need to use another roster spot if you're going to have them on your roster. You've locked someone else in. It's, it's the it's the Jock Peterson curse, if you will. Like, Jock Peterson can be a really nice player. But you have to have someone else on your roster to play whenever there's a lefty in. So it's more of just the, the shrinking of the roster options, if you will. Does that make yeah. sense? No, I, I think that makes sense. I think platoon, like you said, platoons make sense if you're not overwhelmed with them. If you have it, like one thing I, I do love that the Rays do always, and the Dodgers always have the, well, less of so the Dodgers because they have more, I think, established guys that they're comfortable just playing day in and day out, but. Uh, especially with the Rays, that hyper-modular lineup where it feels like every position has a platoon at it. But that really only works because every guy on the Rays can play four positions or, you know, can be a catcher and an outfielder somehow. You know, they can they can fill a lot of weird parts on the defensive spectrum by themselves. 
So, I mean, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's that going forward, baseball teams, they're less about strict platoons and more and more about the idea of you have a guy who can play instead of just he's your, for example, your left-handed hitting backup outfielder, platoon outfielder. He's your left-handed hitting platoon outfielder and first baseman. And turns out he can actually play a little second base if you in the right shift or in the right positioning. So maybe it's something closer to that, I think. Um, but as for why it'd be considered a bad thing to be a left-handed platoon hitter, I mean... Nobody wants to be pigeonholed, right? Guys want to play every day. Like, yeah, and, and I mean, Jock Peterson signed with the Cubs last year because they told him he'd play. They every told day. him play every day. Yeah, and, and, I and think they realized too, very quickly that he shouldn't play against. Lefties. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like these guys <laughs> soon reveal why it is they don't play every day, exactly. but they still they still want to. And for as much as yeah, they start seventy five to eighty percent of games, which is almost all the way there. They also only make seventy five to eighty percent of what a full time player really would. Like, right. you could make an argument that if Jock Peterson were even competent against left handed pitching. He'd make way more. He would have made way more money on the open market than he would. Oh have yeah. To, he he probably would have been signed already instead of just waiting for the lockout to end and seeing what happens from there. That that's kind of the thing. Like I think, just to stick with Peterson and not to not to be unfair to Jock Peterson, who's a perfectly fine player, but like yeah, he's really really valuable. But he's a guy who's never probably never going to land that big free agent contract because every team rightfully sees him as the left-handed part of the strong side of a platoon. And that has a ton of value, but it doesn't add up to a starter. And mm-hmm. that's always I mean, that's the thing with all these guys. They never want to be seen as a bench player because ultimately, if you're a platoon player, some chunk of the time you are on the bench and there's just no way around that. And you're just going to get t- labeled a reserve or a fourth outfielder or whatever. Like, no, nah, these guys want to be starters and they want starter money. And they want starter guarantees, and they want starter years. Mm, and then there's even like the semi platoon players where you're like, hey, you know, what? we gotta, we gotta, we need someone else in against a tough righty. You know, yeah. um, I think that I think that's understandable, especially yeah. as a guy gets older. Um, you know, you wanna you wanna have that space for them. But like, yeah, I think just immediately finding yourself in that Jock Peterson role where you pretty much only start against right handed pitching, and that's mm-hmm. really it. Yeah, I don't think anyone necessarily wants to end up there. Um, but it does, I mean, on the other hand, it does give guys opportunities that they probably would not get otherwise. Uh, the long extant lefty mashers who have just floated through the majors because they can hit righties. And that's really about it. Right. That there's always value in that. You always need that. Same with the, same with the, the righties who can really hit lefties. Those guys will always hang around forever. Yeah. The lefty mashers. Yeah. Um, and Nick's email comes from Nick. It's another communications question. And Nick says, throughout the regular season, the offseason, you see daily DFAs and waiver claims. My question is, how does this process look inside a front office? Do teams get notifications each time a player is DFA'd and put on waivers? How does the process look when teams trade the DFA player for a player to be named later or cash considerations rather than letting them clear waivers? Are teams choosing between multiple offers? If a team sees a player they really want on waivers, are they attempting to make a trade for them? Uh, so this goes back to we talked about this earlier. These 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 um, these email lists. So um, usually a, a number of people who are involved in the process, maybe I don't know. The Astros was like five to eight people uh, were on the waiver email list, and so every day, usually around lunchtime or so, you get an email, uh, and it's called the it would and it would, I, I, well I was about to say one went out today, but that's not the case because we were currently in a lockout in a normal world. Uh, around lunchtime, you get an email from Major League Baseball that said, uh, 12-23-21, waiver request bulletin. And that would have all of the players who hit DFA. So it just, it would just say, um, you know, Toronto Blue Jays, blah, 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 blah. 
New York Yankees, blah, 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 blah. I would just have like the list of the five players who got DFA'd. And sometimes you get one and it would have no players. And sometimes you go and have 11, like said, and, you know, very busy during the end of spring training, for example. Um, and so that lets everybody know. That's how the world knows that this player has been DFA'd. And then if you have interest in the player, you would then contact with the team and, and try to work something out. Um, it's always, it's almost always for cash considerations. And it's almost always like $5,000 above the claim price. And if multiple teams want the player, which is rare, then all of a sudden it becomes like this weird little eBay offer where like, we, we'll give you 55 and like the, they'll give me, I'll give you 60. We'll give you 65. And it, it, it rarely gets into six figures. Um, and it's always just like a cash consideration thing. And, and the money gets wired from one team to another and the player becomes yours. Um, the fun thing is, is not the waiver request bulletin. It's the waiver result bulletin where you have a player currently on DFA and then you get an email saying the pirates claimed him. And then you go, Oh shit, he's gone. Uh, and you find out via a, a email comes same time, the waiver result bulletin. And that's when you know that your player who you DFA got, got claimed by someone else. Um, so it's all email groups. It's all like DFAs. And it was, it, it was a process like, you know, the, 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 the waiver request bulletin went out and, um, we had a, a Slack channel that was called the, you know, it was called waivers or something. And, and like, everyone would take a look at it and go, Hey, can we take a closer look at this guy? Is that guy interesting? And talk through him and, and, you know, three times a year, you'd be interested in talking about actually claiming someone. So but, you front the front office folks never get to get off their phones. So. No, God. Yeah. You have no idea. No. Is, is it, it genuinely sounds like you guys get about 7,000 emails a day. Um, it, early, yeah, it turned into, um, 7,000 Slack messages at some point, but yeah. Oh, that's get, even worse. Yeah. That's worse. It's not a win. And, um, way worse. but yeah, you, you, tons of emails from either originating from or being run through Major League Baseball that come your way. Um, waiver request bulletins, waiver result bulletins, uh, rule changes, um, draft stuff, schedules. Uh, international stuff, schedules, reminders. Um, there's a there's an international email group, and like you know, two or three times a week, you get one saying, "Hey, these four Cubans have cleared, have gotten OFAC clearance," um, which is the clearance that Cubans have to get in order to be able to sign. So now they're, they're now no longer ineligible to sign. They're now eligible to sign. Here's these four players who are now eligible to sign. Um, yeah, the emails are constant. You just you're constantly getting like just administrative emails from Major League Baseball. Sounds exhausting. It's kind of it's kind of fun, and it sounds like a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, our next email comes from Chris. Chris is a fantastic musician and uh, and uh, and audio engineer as well. He's recorded many great albums. And Chris says, "Hi, Kevin. I don't recall your exact phrasing, but a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned that the Kane County minor league team really blew it when it came to handling MLB's realignment of the minor leagues." If you're at liberty to say just how they blew it and why they don't currently have a Major League Baseball affiliated team, I would love to hear that. I grew up in St. Charles, Illinois, which is very close to where Kane County plays. They play in the next town over, Geneva. Uh, and I recall being very excited when I learned there was a minor league team coming to the next town over. I went to numerous games there over the years, and after dropping out of college the second time, I worked at a dry cleaners in Geneva where we cleaned all the satiny coaches' jackets for those Cape County Cougars. My mom even worked in a concession stand there for part of a season just for fun. Um, 
the story of the Kane County Cougars, like there should be an oral history written of the Kane County Cougars and how screwed up they are. So the Kane County Cougars are in Geneva, Illinois, in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, it's like a, about a 40-minute drive from where I am, maybe a 30, 40-minute drive out from Chicago west um, in, in a, a nice, certainly a, a, a nice upper middle class or higher level suburb. They have a really nice facility. The stadium's a, it's a very good facility for, for A-level baseball. Um, they draw well. And yet they don't have an affiliation. And and on paper, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So here's what happened. The people running that team are really difficult. They have run through, if you watch, their affiliation changed every time there was a, an, an, uh, you know, every time the dance happened every three or four years, their affiliation would change. And because teams didn't want to be there because they were very difficult to work with. And so... I remember you know, talking to one team. They're like, "Hey, we can't wait to get out of here." I'm like, "This is great!" And they told them they can't work with these people. They're impossible. And there was a time, maybe two affiliations ago, where they had the Cubs. Imagine this: they're in the suburbs of Chicago, the most popular team by a mile, despite success maybe of other is the Cubs. The Cubs are are such a huge thing in Chicago. They had the Cubs prospects in Chicago. It was great for the team. If you want to go see your A-ball team, you just get in the car and drive 30 minutes. The, the, fan, the, the, the place was packed with people in Cubs gear, watching Cubs prospects. And the Cubs left them because they didn't want to be there anymore. How you screw that up, I have no idea. But they screwed that one up even. Um, and so when it came for the third time, no one, wanted, no one wanted them. And so they ended up on the outside looking in because no one wanted to be there, even though they had all this amazing stuff going for them. To screw up the Cubs thing tells you everything you need to know. Like that was like, I, it was the greatest single minor league system set up ever where you're in a nice suburb of Chicago. You have the Cubs as your affiliate and you somehow screwed that up. And that just, at some point it's on you, man. I was going to say, cause it, it's weird to me that the Cubs also would not want the convenience of their a ball affiliate right there for ease right. of access. They, yeah. They ended up moving to, to South Bend where they have a really, it's a really nice setup there, but still. Like there, it's it was beautiful when it was in Kane County. It was like a half hour drive, and and even they wanted out. Like no yeah. one wanted to stay there, and it's just it's, it's amazing. And, and and look, my league affiliates, if you don't own the team, can it can be a pain in the ass sometimes. And you know, the, sometimes you're like, man, can you fix the batting cages? Like that's on you. Can you do that? And they're always always bugging you. Um, I went to Quad Cities a lot when they were in Ashes affiliate because it was the one affiliate I could drive to. Um, and I would get hounded if, if there was a player who was on the DL, I would get hounded by them. Sometimes by the owner of the team, if he was in town going, Hey, when Springer comes up, comes off the DL, can he rehab here? We you need to get Springer here. I really need those gates. And like, cause those are huge days for them when, the, when right. the rehabbing. And I was like, you know, look, I mean, he's in Houston and Corpus is right there. He's going to go to Corpus. Um, and and just like howdy, you gotta, you, you owe us. You, you really got to get us one. Like you, we haven't had a rehab stint here for a long. I'm like, I, first of all, it's not me. You're talking to the wrong guy. And then um, it was a, it was a real thing. And so like they can, it's, it could be a lot of work and some managing, but like something about King County. And I don't know specifics, but something about King County, like nobody was happy there. Nobody. Hmm. It's the strangest thing. And again, great place to be nice facility. And, and yet can't get a major league affiliate. Cause just, they were too difficult to deal with. 
That's that really is something. Imagine tossing it all away like that. Yeah, it's just I I don't know. I wonder if they're I, and I don't know. I wonder if like they're sitting around now going, "Man, what we do wrong?" Or if they're like, "Man, we were we screwed that up." Well, good, Cause, good cause, way to go, way to go, King County. Because they were an indie ball team this year, and and they didn't draw anything near what they usually do. Um, our next email comes from Matt. This is our holiday question. Matt says, "I'm wondering what teams do for Christmas for employees." What about players? Does the team do anything around the holidays for them or their kids when not locked out? Did the Astros ever give you anything notable? What about BA or BP or anything notable? What baseball, while baseball seems like a cool injury to be in, but has many downsides that utopian fans don't see, did the Astros ever send you on a scouting trip on Christmas? (laughs) If so, I'm sure your wife understood, but it's not optimal. I don't think I even, my wife would understand. My wife put up with a ton. I don't know if she put up with that, and I don't know if I would either. Um, So baseball is an industry shuts down. For the most part, um, obviously, you're still maybe checking in with agents and players for if you're in the middle of a negotiation or something. But like offices get closed uh, from like now until New Year's. No one goes into the office and, and you're just kind of keeping you're still, uh, you know, to go back to, to your theme, John, you're certainly looking at your phone a lot. Um, but no one's going to the office and things like that. Um, There's always like a Christmas party that I ever went to because I never lived in Houston um, it was very fancy. It took place like on the field and it was black tie and everything. And there's some sort of charitable involvement. Um, the Astros had a very nice bonus package. got very nice bonuses every year. Not every team has those. Um, but other than that, I got, I, I, I got, I got treat Christmas ornaments and I have a, I have a Los Angeles Dodgers snow globe that they sent me one year. But um, it's it's no it's like normal company. There's a Christmas party and a bonus. I think most companies have something kind of like that. Yeah, I mean MLB had a when I worked for MLB AM, um, they had their their holiday Christmas party, their mm-hmm. their company holiday party. I think it was, it was a blowout for. Was it nice? Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, they had uh, they they opened they opened the bar, which I which I always appreciated. Yeah, that's, free food. That, that's the best party. Um, yeah, I, I'd always kind of figured that, like, I remember, because, you know, since I've since I've been working in baseball media, I always remembered, you know, that, yeah, around Chris, the day of Christmas, there's nothing really going on ever in the sport. I remember yeah. the closest I've ever, the, the only times I remember something happening, like, notably in baseball, in, the, in recent past, or on or around Christmas, was Tanaka got posted, I believe, right mm. before Christmas. There's Whatever. been a few deals that got done around the holidays, yeah, for and sure. And then the, the one, the ones that really stand, I think that was around both CC Sabathia and Mark Teixeira signed with the Yankees ahead of the 09 season, I think around Christmas 2008. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember it was around that period of time. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I, I, I remember that in all my, all my time as a baseball fan and then baseball media person that, yeah, everything is really dead on Christmas. Yeah, and for the most part, like the for most people – even scouts, like the winter meetings is your last travel of the year. Um, when you get home from the winter meetings, you're usually home until the end of December, and then everything starts, ramps up again. But usually, like, that's done. Um, I don't know anyone, even even international shuts down, um, for the most part. Like, if you, if, 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 if John and I got magically transported to San Domingo right now and got in a car and, and drove to teams' complexes, they would be, they would be barren. They would be empty. Yeah, that's, um, yeah and that's the other thing, like you said, like, those... The Christmas holiday is a big, big deal in Latin America. Like, you yeah. shut down for not just Christmas, but really, like, the whole week of Christmas. Right. And so nothing – so, yeah, so the, the industry's really shut down, like, right now, even, today or tomorrow, and then won't really start up again until um, till the calendar flips. Yeah. So, good night, good night baseball. Enjoy your sleep. <laughs> 
Our next email comes from Mark. Mark says, I'm going through the Effectively Wild back catalog of episodes. Mark, you things. there's things you can do. Uh, you appeared a handful of times. I just listened to episode 221. The oh, title... He's really in the back yeah. catalog. Sheesh. The title, Astro's Pro Scouting Coordinator Kevin Goldstein on the Amateur Draft. This episode happened shortly after day one of the 2013 draft. You talked about the process of how that day went and also shared insights on why Mark Appel, on why Mark Appel was the pick at 1-1, which I believe you generally supported. I don't think I've ever heard your retrospective on Mark Appel and what happened with him. So what happened with Mark Appel? Um, I, the first thing I would say is like, of course, I was generally supported the pick because I was representing the Houston Astros in that interview and... Um, and they paid my mortgage and more and, and I towed the company line and I think that's fine. Um, I, I'm happy to tell you, and I wasn't the only one. I thought we, I thought the Astros should take Chris Bryant <laughs> and, said, and said as much, uh, and went in another direction went with Mark Appel. And I, it's funny because I think Mark Appel was the 2013 draft was the last draft that the Astros, uh, were not totally buttoned up and ready to lean on pitch data like they ended up doing and finding great success with. Um, and I think if, Mark Appel's pitch data was analyzed the way that the Astros came to analyze pitch data, he would not have been the 1-1 pick. Um, Mark Appel's fastball shape, which was something that the Astros, I've written about fastball shapes at Fangraphs, and, and something that, that um, the Astros leaned very hard on in evaluating pitchers. Um, Mark Appel's fastball shape was suboptimal. Um, in fact, it was it was very, very unideal. It was the one, it was the, the one fastball shape. He had good velocity, but it had the shape that you really don't want to have. What was it straight as a line or something? It, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of 45 degrees. If you like measure horizontal and vertical break, they're equal. Ah. And so it's like a 45 degree angle. If you put it on a, on a plot, on a, on a plot, if you plot that and those 45 degree guys, that's the worst possible fastball shape. You either want the riser where there's way more, way more vertical than horizontal. Right, right, right. Or you, you, want want the, you want a fastball that moves it's or, to some degree. Right, or you want a sinker where it's way more vertical right. you don't, horizontal You don't want just something where it's like, it, it ends up exactly where you expect it to end up. And that's exactly, that's the, the that's the perfect way to put it. Absolutely. So fastballs, when they come out of the hand, someone who's who's hit 7,000 pitches a day in BP and it, has it has what they expected to where they expected to end up from out of the hand? You you need to make it do something different, um, and and he did not do that, um, and that was his biggest problem. Obviously, he had some health issues and some other um, I don't know commitment to baseball issues. I mean, it's 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 but, a hard thing. The, mentally, the problem I was think. the was the fastball shape. It, it's a hard thing mentally, I think, to be made a number one pick and be told you know that basically. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's I think some guys some guys thrive on it and some guys do not. I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, Billy Bean was not the number one pick, but it, it's, I mean, Billy Bean always stands out as the example to me. Yeah. Super athlete who said himself, like, I just couldn't handle the, the mental pressure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for, for specifically for Appel, I remember uh, June Lee wrote about him for, I want to say it was uh, on Bleacher Report. But if you if you if you look up Mark Appel, June's story should be up there. He talked to him, a, a, I think, a couple years after he retired. It's a really good piece that just gets into kind of right. where Appel was mentally, and just he seemed like a guy who also really had trouble with, yeah, um, with the expectations and the pressure, and you know, it just it didn't really seem to suit him. And baseball itself did not really seem to suit him. I right. professional baseball anyway. I, I think that's a good way to put. Professional baseball did not suit Mark Appel well. I, I think so, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I, I would recommend anyone who's curious about Appel to go look that piece up. It's 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 well done. Drew did a great job with it, and it's very thorough about his career and what he's up to now. Which I actually can't remember what he's up he to came. Now, he, but... he tried to come back last year. He pitched in the Phillies Triple A. That's right. That's right. I think so. This was written before he did that, but right. I. I forget he what he out. was doing in in the interim. Um, uh, I forget too. 
Yeah, but it's it's a good piece on his on just what happened to him in Houston and why he did not succeed there. Um, our next email comes from Riley. If you're a fan of the band Thrice, Riley is the drummer. And oh, this R- is Riley Breckenridge. It is. Hey, Riley. And Riley says, "Dearest Kevin and John, why are the angels?" Good question. <laughs> Wishing you both a safe and happy holiday, Riley. Um, here's the thing, Riley. I've been thinking about the Angels a lot, and you know what? I think they might be okay this year. Like, I think if there was an expanded playoffs, I might put them in. Like, I think there's a path to them being pretty kind of okay good. You know how low a bar this is for the team that has the two best (laughs) baseball players on the face of the earth? I know it's kind of sad, but that's pathetic. I can kind of squint. I can kind of squint and go, this team might be okay. Like they got Trout and Otani, and and you know what? Like Marsh is Marsh might be pretty good, and boyfriend Don is healthy, and like there's there's like Detmers should be okay, and and what if Syndergaard comes back? And that Iglesias one of the best closers in baseball. There, it's just it is staggering to me how a team with with this much talent also has that many conditionals. And just yeah, just and obviously no pitching, but like I just like they might be okay. I think it might be okay, Riley. I really do. I like I like the question. Just why are the angels? Because it's, it's like <laughs> right, both Riley and 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 Milton had the same question. Why are the angels? And, and Milton <laughs> went to Paradise Lost, and Riley comes to us. And you know, I I I don't know. The they just are. I think at a certain point with teams that are just like this. It, it's like, what are the constants here? What, yeah, are the, yeah. what are the permanent elements? And in the with the Angels, there is one very high up permanent element that has not changed throughout this entire stretch of time, and mm-hmm. uh, has a, as I'm sure Riley knows, has played a very large role in why this team is where it is because it is run like a used car franchise uh, lot. Basically, I think is the Angels are kind of just like a used car lot. They just kind of hear some cheap shit. Occasionally, here's a nice one, but mostly here's some cheap shit. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. It's, it's always good to talk about this kind of thing. Where like the one constant is that Artie Moreno is the owner. It's like yeah, when, I don't know when, why uh, I was beating around that particular. <laughs> yeah, person. and it's fine. But like I, I was, I used to think about this with the Mets a lot. Yeah, that, um, that's that's the other team that always right. The Mets like, was like, oh, and all these GMs aren't working out. I'm like, well, what's your? Hey, that's fine. All these GMs aren't working out, and the team's not doing. What's your one constant? It's the Wilpons. It's the Wilpons. And that's the thing with all these teams. Like the what's the constant with the Rockies? The Monforts. What's the what's yes. the constant with um, with the Pirates? Bob Nutting. Like that is the constant, endless problem that has no that has no solution. Is right. ownership is simply not up to the task of building a winning team because it's either too cheap or too meddlesome or too stupid or in the mm-hmm. case of the Monforts, all three. Right. Um, Artie Moreno, I don't know exactly how. I don't know how many boxes of bad owner bingo he ticks, um, but I, I know it's a lot of boxes. Oh, you, yeah, you, 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 you win the slow kicker, slow cooker, and the big gift certificate on that Ooh, bingo okay. card. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, I, I would be curious if you could get an anonymous survey or, or any survey. I guess it would have to be anonymous, but whatever. Of, of various front office folks to mm. find out who, who they collectively think the worst owner in this in the sport is. Oh, it's fun. Um, there's because a there are a lot of really good candidates. There are, and 
um, speaking solely on baseball, like during my time with the Astros, Jim Crane was one of the best because he just wrote the checks and trusted everyone and was not and that's metals, all you want, and was not right? It's the best owner in the world. Like that's I, what you want. Is know... what every what every team should want is late stage Mike Illich, where it's just yeah. I just want to win before I die. Here and is, here's the money. Here is, Here's all the money I have. It's like, the best. Go, bu- go build a winner. Uh, and that's turned 180. Like, and, and Jim has become very, very involved since the scandal broke. Because um, I, I think partially he feels kind of responsible because he didn't have his eye on the ball, if you will. Um, and so that's changed dramatically. And I know, you know, but there are plenty of teams that have, it's the owner's the problem. And like, they're trying their best. And teams get really mad at the front officer doing this. I'm like, don't, you're mad, getting mad at the wrong person. Yeah, you're really getting mad at the wrong person. You're getting mad at an extension of this bad person. Right. Like, you get, you're getting you know, mad at middle management here. Like I don't I don't necessarily know that I agree with everything the pirates do just in a vacuum, but I do think that front office, I think the Ben Charrington and company would probably like more money to work with. Of course they would, yeah. More money makes everything easier, you know. It means you don't have to do the bullshit that the pirates do. They might still do the bullshit, I don't know, but it, it, they would at least not have to. Our next email comes from Patrick, and Patrick says, "Question for John." Ooh, okay. I thought this was this is a this is a dumb question, and yet I was kind of interested with the answer. Oh, I, I liked I love dumb questions. Let's hear it. Do people screw up the spelling of your first name by going J O H N instead of J O N, or your last name going with this more standard T A Y L O R instead of T A Y L E R, which is your name more? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, you know what's funny? The latter is guaranteed. Like I, I have yeah, made it, sure. I am at the because if I, here's the thing with both. Obviously, with both of my both my first name and my last name. My first name is is just short for Jonathan, but John is just faster and easier for everybody. And Jonathan just feels so formal. It's it's got a very it's got a very kind of heft to it that I yeah I really yeah. Need. You're going to private school. Exactly. Um, also, I, I wanted as a youth to avoid as much as possible the in, the Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Uh, oh boy, connection. yeah, 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 sure. Boy, I, that, talk about a joke I have heard way too many times in my life uh, as someone who was growing up around the same time his star was ascendant. Um, but it's funny because if people, if people, if you were to ask people to spell my name, I'm sure they would go to the default spelling for both of those: J O H N and T A Y L O R. Right. I am used to because at. The, because at this point, there are a lot of Johns, but my last name is unique. So I've gotten to the point where when I spell out my last name for, you know, whatever purpose it needs to be spelled out, I have, an, I like have a distinct inflection on E. I say, you know, T-A-Y-L-E-R. I make sure that the E is present because otherwise people are just going to, when they hear Taylor, they're going to be like, oh, right, T-A-Y-L-O-R. You know, I got to jolt them into it. It is uncommon. There's, there's, if you, if it's you, if, it's if very you, uncommon. If you do Taylor uh, on baseball reference, you get zero. Yeah, it's a very uncommon variation. The weird thing is my family, there are some family members who spell it this way and others who spell it the more common way. Mm. I think they just got tired they of, just gave of up. the misspelling, which I, I totally understand. I am just bullheaded about it. I'm never going to let it go. But the funny thing is um, I've taken to, you know, when you get like, if for example, you get asked your order at a, at a coffee shop or something and say, what's the name? I've gotten out to spelling my first name J-O-N because I know John is very common and so I want to make sure if there's another John in there that they can know, oh, no, this is for one without an H or whatever, if that needs to be the case. Or maybe I just like the idea of just getting my name correct. No matter how often I do that, it just ends up being J-O-H-N. People just, people assume the former. Really? Yeah, I think they just don't, I don't think people like recognize J-O-N as kind of a, I don't know. It's which is weird because I've always argued it's the phonetically correct John. It is. 
the H is some stupid old English nonsense, probably. It's it's some Anglo-Saxon variant that we just never got rid of because we let British people decide how to spell things, despite the fact that they don't know how to spell things. Those are a U in color. You've added a lot of color to this conversation. Yeah, color. I don't understand (laughs) that. Aluminium. What are you talking about? Stop with the extra vowels, but... No, I they they both get misspelled all or I, I don't yeah misspelled they both get spelled I get the other variant or variation all the time. I would probably say that at this point though I have enough things with regards to my last name like that are per, like my driver's license or my passport where my my name itself exists within the system well enough that it you know if I get mail it is usually spelled correctly to me because my name exists correctly out there. Fun fact though, my voter registration my last name is spelled wrong. I've just never, I never bothered. Once I saw it, I was like, you know what? The process of changing and fixing yeah, this is going win. to be so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. that it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Right, you win. It's the state of That's New York. That, uh, my name could be completely wrong on there and it wouldn't matter. Like, I, I'm still allowed to vote because that's the law in New York where I get to vote not just three times, but also for every, uh, for every uh, undocumented immigrant. And my vote also counts five times as much uh, when it comes to the presidential election mm. because it's New York. And because you've hacked the Dominion system. And because we hacked the Dominion voting machines on the advice of the ghost of, of Hugo Chavez. <laughs> or whoever. I don't, which country is at fault for that? I like that it was at one point like a Venezuelan Chinese plot, point I think, Venezuelan or Italian. Chinese, right. Italy got involved. I was like, what is it? What, what would Italy care? Well, at one point... The, Italy has the, their own problems. And the, they, have, they go through like six prime ministers a year. But all the data, all the server data was being stored at a secret military base in Germany. Okay. Yeah. There are so many other extant awful conspiracy theories out there. Why even? Ma- why do you need to make up new ones? Like, what, did you like, not to go on a th- tangent here? But let's go on a tangent here. Did you did you read about? It was it was it was a little bit of a thing yesterday. That there was a QAnon conference in Texas last week. Hasn't there been an ongoing and thing there where folks showed up for the, the JFK anniversary people. of JFK's yeah. assassination, but it's a like, lot of them still haven't left? Apparently, they're all hanging out there and they're also drinking bleach. Like it's become like Jim Jones. When are, anyway, they gonna, when are they going to get to colloidal silver? That's that's a, very when close. it comes to conspiracy bingo, that's a really big one. So anyway, there was a QAnon conspiracy in Texas, and of course they're QAnon people, so they're conspiracy theorists, so they're also anti-vaccine, right? Of course. And so obviously, oh, okay. they all got together, about, yes. and they yes. all, and therefore all of them got COVID. But they're not going to admit that because they're conspiracy theorists, and so now they're all saying that they've been secretly poisoned by anthrax through the vents. The government poisoned them with anthrax. These pe- I love the, the the assumption that the government, which currently can't figure out the simple matter of COVID testing, is somehow at the same time yeah. like powerful enough to infect a bunch of why like, like weirdo like, yeah whack jobs. On, with, yeah, you're gonna take the I under, time. I to understand do that. if you believe this stuff, you're not currently connected to any version of reality we exist in. But like, <laughs> man, you're really riding high on the on the ivermectin right there. So yeah, so they all got anthrax. They didn't get COVID. They were all poisoned with anthrax. And wait till they learn that to treat anthrax, they were afraid of three shots. Anthrax is a five shot series. I was gonna say. Yeah. Um, our final email comes from Mike, and Mike says. Here's something kind of bonkers that flew entirely beneath my radar. What with all of the bullshit of late? Accurate. NASA is about to launch the James Webb Telescope. Depending upon what you read, it's going to be able to see so far that it will look back in time, 
somewhere between 13.2 to 13.6 billion years. The science folks seem to suggest the Big Bang happened 14 billion years ago, give or take. The Hubble Deep Field image is a few billion years short of this. It also features a sunshield thing that is incredibly thin and deploys like a giant folding umbrella sometimes after launch, and the shield operates optimally at negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Everything I have read seems to suggest that the first two weeks of the mission will be a white-knuckle event for NASA folks 24-7 to make sure everything goes properly. Anyway, space exploration is cool. Yes, I was also uh, reading about... I forget where actually now, but reading about the James Webb telescope and that it's going to be this very difficult process to unfold this thing because it's like, it's like having something apparently unfold like that in space is very, very hard Mm. for whatever reason. But like the concept though, of something that can see so far, it can effectively see backwards in time. And I understand, I understand. I understand it, but I, I, but at the same time, yeah, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. It's like, because what we see of stars are th- essentially the residue of what happened billions of years ago or, or millions of years ago or hundreds or whatever it is, like whatever the, you know, that it would, that what happened, what is, what already happened years ago, we are only just now seeing because of how distant these things are from us. So I get the idea that this thing is capable of seeing so far into space that it's seeing things that unfolded yeah, essentially 13 billion years ago that we still have not seen because they are so far away from us. And it is taking so long for the light from that event to travel from that point to this point. Mm-hmm. That being said, I'm pretty sure this email was written stoned. Everything about it just gives, like, because, like, that's the optimal mindset for deep space stuff. Yes. Because, like, man, and so space I, is Space is cool, crazy. man. Crazy. It's insane. So I read this email. I, wow. wanted, I wanted to end on this email for a reason. So I read this email and I was like, I, this is really cool, Mike, but why are you sending this to my show? And and again, probably high. But this was a, a good opportunity as we end this year to talk about um, the show and the emails. And um, if you send in a question, thank you, help make the show better. <clears throat> but I also, like so many people sent emails that um, were not necessarily questions, but just really... Um, kind comments about the show and how much they liked the show and how it became like an important part. And then you heard, and then you get the emails that are really um, touching. And I think that's the thing about a podcast that's you never, I don't think you ever hear from these kind, these kind of things. If you, if you only write, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I make no secret of it. I like talking more than I like writing. Um, and, and, and the podcast is, the, is easily the best content I've put out. Um, but like hearing from like people who went through some shit and the show helped them get through that shit, um, to hear from, you know, someone who like has going through a really rough time and they would turn the show and it, it got them through. I think that's, that's touching. And, and, um, to hear from someone who like literally every Friday has to go through something really awful for health purposes. Um, and the show comes out on Friday and this is what they turn to help and get through it. Like that's touching. And, and I know that podcasts are different than writing in the sense that they do create, um, kind of a parasocial relationship. Uh, and, and that can, there, there's, there's downs to that, but the upside's really significant. And, um, I, I just wanted to thank everyone for emailing and everyone who's, who's reached out to let me know how much 
they enjoy the show, even if it's not for a super deep reason, um, even just because you like the show, that's great too. People who, uh, people who create things like hearing back that you liked what they created. And um, it is so many emails. I, I would get at least one email a week that, that absolutely made my day and, and helped me get through my own shit. Um, and so just, I just wanted to thank everybody as we end the year uh, for listening to the show. Thanks to all the co-hosts, including three-time co-host John Taylor. Bonjour. Oh, if I um if I make it to five, do I get like a cool co- jacket like the it, SNL folks have? You get a, you get a, a pin. Okay. Yeah, I get a. Pin. How many times did John Goodman host SNL? Because he was in like the fifteen times club. It feels like wasn't it didn't ha- wasn't it was Hanks or Steve Martin the leader? I forget. I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up while while we're while we're talking. But um, <laughs> I was I, wrapping I, up. Damn it. I I well now I need to know this. <laughs> I, I do appreciate that. Wow, first Alec Baldwin has mm. the most. Uh, seventeen times. That's your that's your that's your. I was wondering what it's the number was. Yeah. Baldwin seventeen, Steve Martin fifteen, John Goodman thirteen. Okay, he's and there. Tom Hanks ten. Okay. Um, that means Alec Baldwin has been has been on SNL with all the Trump stuff too, like fifty times. That's too many. easy. That's... That says a lot about SNL that Alec Baldwin is the person who is they call on most unwatchable. Yes. Um. So, again, thanks to everyone for listening this year. I don't think there's going to be a show next week, but we'll come back in the year 2022, uh, guns blazing. And uh, thanks, John. Baseball eventually. Yeah. Thanks, John, for going through some emails with me to keep things going. Thanks for having me. And we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening, everybody.